So great to see you guys. My name is Christopher. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at River West. Have the unbelievable privilege of, of opening up the scriptures with you today as we come to our fourth and final passage in Isaiah that we are studying. Isaiah 53, what some call the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful. Would love to have a Bible in your hand. Uh, if you raise your hand, the ushers are going to come around. We're going to be getting into the book of Isaiah this morning as we conclude our series, Behold Your God. We have been on a quest now for many months with the prophet Isaiah to see the servant of the Lord through the lens of this prophetic book. We have seen things about our Savior that are wonderful and true and absolutely riveting. And we have saved the best for last this week as we move into Good Friday and Easter, the gem in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. We're going to open it up today. And as we get closer to Good Friday and Easter, we're coming to the holy epicenter of Christianity. One scholar, D.A. Carson, he put it well when he said, the entire Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Nothing is more central to Christianity and to the gospel itself than Jesus' death and resurrection. So I want to propose to you this morning, before we come in here, after parking very, very far away, and, and declaring to one another, he is risen, to which you will reply, let's practice. He is risen indeed. Let's try it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Before we utter our joyful he is risen to one another, first let me propose that we must see something that's more sobering that Isaiah is going to put before us today. Namely, that the same servant who rose from the grave and walked out of the tomb on Easter Sunday was wounded for our sins and hung on an old rugged cross. Before we celebrate the fact that Christ is risen, first we must see his wounds. As the great German reformer Martin Luther put it perfectly, if you want to understand the Christian message, you must start with the wounds of Christ. Luther's saying, if you want to understand the essence of Christianity, you must always begin by looking at the cross, by seeing his wounds, by meditating on his sacrifice. And to be honest and candid, if you remove the sufferings of Christ from Easter, you're not left with much. All that remains really is a holiday dedicated to an oversized bunny, Easter egg hunts, and honey-baked honey hams. Not that I have anything against honey-baked hams or Easter eggs, but I've always been suspect of the Easter bunny. 
Because of pictures like this, isn't it strange that most pictures involving children with the Easter Bunny involve elements of terror? Yes, it's an egg-laying massive bunny who breaks into people's homes to bring fake grass and to scatter things around your house. The terror is appropriate. If you compare that with Jesus and the children, and we have a picture here, they're not running away in terror. I mean, that joke came to me at like 5.30 this morning, and it was like way funnier in my head. There's the bunny, looks like he's eating children, and then there's Jesus and the children. Easter's about Jesus. Funky things happen when we remove Jesus from Christian holidays, okay? We're focusing on Jesus. And if you want to fully appreciate the awesome wonder of Easter Sunday, you must consider the wounds that our Savior endured on the cross for our sins. You must look past the hands, the the pastel colors, and see Christ crucified for us. That's why for over 2,000 years in the weeks leading up to Easter, during Holy Week, followers of Christ have gathered together like we are today to pause, to slow down, to meditate on Christ's suffering. And of all the places that we could turn in the Bible to reflect on Christ's wounds, none is more wonderful than Isaiah chapter 53. So with that, open the scriptures this morning to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament as we look together at our wounded Savior who loves us through the lens of Isaiah's book. We're going to start in verse 4 today of Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, he shall prosper his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressions. This is God's word. Although the words that we just read, that Isaiah recorded for us, were written some 700 years before Jesus' death, Isaiah's prophetic portrait of Christ's suffering is so vivid, it's almost as if every word was written at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus of Nazareth, who was beaten and scourged and pierced. If you need any proof that these words are divinely inspired, that this portrait of Christ crucified for our sins, pierced for our iniquities, was written hundreds of years before the advent of crucifixion by the Persians. And yet it's almost impossible to read this passage and not visualize through Isaiah's prophetic lens of the servant, servant the sufferings Jesus endured. Jesus just shines and his wounds shine at every piece of this passage. However, unlike films like Mel, Gibson, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, where we're presented with all the gory details of how Christ suffered, Isaiah is going to bring us to the foot of the cross this morning, and what he's going to reveal to us is not the gory details of how Jesus died. He's going to show us the glorious mystery of why he died. And so as he brings us before Jesus on the cross, he wants us this morning to see three wonderful truths about his wounds. And the first one goes like this. Very simple. Every wound Christ received was for us. Every single one was for us. One of the unique striking elements of this passage is, is how the prophet Isaiah, through the language that he employs, draws you and I as the readers into the scene. You see, what's very provocative about this passage is unlike the other servant passages where the primary focus is the servant and who he is. If you notice in this passage that it draws us in and we're placed right alongside the servant. So it's not just the servant and his wounds we, we see in this passage. We see us 
in this passage. In fact, if you notice in verses 4 to 6, there's actually two subjects. There's the servant and then there's us. There's he and we. There's him and us. To help you capture this uh, for the visual learners among us, I made a chart. And take a look at this, just breaking down just verses 4 to 6, there's this exchange between the two articles of focus in this passage. The servant, he, and us, the we. In verse 4, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. In verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. Again, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. One commentator, Ray Ortland Jr., in reflecting on this passage, says, Isaiah writes as if we were there at the cross because we were. If it wasn't our guilt that required the death of Jesus, what did? He goes on to reference Rembrandt's painting the raising of the cross and how the, the painter Rembrandt, when, when trying to portray Christ's crucifixion and the Son of God raised up on the cross, he actually paints himself into the picture as one of the men crucifying the Lord. And Isaiah is doing that here in this passage, not with a brush on, on canvas, but with pen on paper, he's not only describing Jesus, he's telling our story too. And none of us here today, as we're painted into this scene, if we were there over 2,000 years ago at Calvary, if we were there, none of us would be able to say this morning, I wouldn't have shouted, crucify him, if I was part of the crowd. Not if we're honest with ourselves and with this text. None of us. None of us would be guiltless. In fact, Isaiah makes that point emphatically in verse 6. Again, as we read that all we like sheep have gone astray all we that we've all turned everyone to his own way and yet in unbelievable grace Christ the innocent son of God was pierced for us he was crushed for us. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
as one of my favorite hymns of all time, How Deep the Father's Love, puts it, Behold the man upon the cross, my son, upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there. However, as Isaiah brings us and paints us into this scene and we see that Christ was crucified because of our sins, because we've all gone astray. We've all turned away from God to our own self-made prisons that we are ashamed of. That Christ is not just on the cross because of our sin, that in outrageous grace, he's on the cross for us as our substitute in our place, taking the wounds and the punishment that you and I justly deserved. Although it defies explanation, it truly does. This language, this portrait of substitution, of one person taking the place or taking the penalty of another, what theologians call the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ. It's the heart of the gospel. And it's just interwoven throughout this passage. It just pervades the whole chapter. I think Isaiah is trying to show us this great mystery in such profound, prophetic detail, what the New Testament writers will tell us over and over and over again, that Christ died for sinners. That on the cross, Christ substituted himself for us, for sinners like you and I, who've gone astray, who've turned our own way. That as the Apostle Paul will say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he became sin that knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Apart from an act of grace where God gives you supernatural eyes to see Jesus, there's no way to comprehend that the perfect Son of God on the cross not only bore our sin on his shoulders, he became our sin. It became our sin. The addict who swallowed down their guilt. The person waking up with stinging regrets of when they turned away, when they went astray. All our guilt was laid on the Son of God and he became the things we're ashamed of most so that we could stand before God unashamed. What grace. What, what love. We'll spend the rest of our 
lives and into eternity praising this one who was made sin for us so that we could be made righteous by him. Amen? In verse 11, look at this profound mystery of Christ's substitution in verse 11 and just the reward of it, the results of it, of Christ taking every wound for us. In verse 11, we see that it was all worth it. It was all for this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Friends, every wound Christ received, every awful beating, it was for us. Every nail that was hammered into the sinless Son of God, it had our names on it. However, according to Isaiah, you and I weren't ultimately the ones that nailed Jesus to the cross. God was. God was. We see this mystery that although every wound of Christ was for us, ultimately every wound Christ suffered was God's will, a divinely orchestrated plan to save us, to redeem us. Let's wade into that mystery as, as we see that Christ's death on the cross was volitional. It was a predetermined plan. It was the will of God. Look at verse 7 to 10 as Isaiah captures that picture there for us of why Christ suffered. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And now look at this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Christ's death on the cross was no accident, nor was his trial and public execution the byproduct of the plotting of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. During Passion Week, as, as Christ came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, along with masses of people, scholars estimate that probably between 80 and 100,000 visitors crowded into Jerusalem during Passover. On Palm Sunday, which is this Sunday, the Sunday that commemorates Jesus' entry, his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, the crowds see that Jesus is riding in on a donkey just as the prophet Zechariah prophesied 
And people began connecting the dots and saying, this is the servant of the Lord. This is the Messiah. And song started breaking out and they started shouting to him, Hoshana, which is we beg you to save us. Hoshana, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a song reserved for the Messiah, for the servant of the Lord. They lay down their cloaks. They wave palm branches, signs of victory, celebrating this king. The city's going crazy. And behind closed doors, the religious leaders are plotting Jesus' death. They're meeting with the high priest. They're calculating this twisted plan to put an innocent man to death. But you know what? Before the religious leaders had Christ arrested, before one wound was inflicted on him, before the crowds shouted, crucify him, Christ had already signed his death warrant. It was the will of God to crush and crucify his sinless son. The cross was and for always will remain God's perfect, sovereignly orchestrated plan to conquer sin and death and undo the awful effects of the fall once and for all. And that's why Peter, when preaching the first He is risen sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 2, in verse 22 and 23 of Acts. If you turn there to the right, look at the way that Peter describes Christ's suffering in this passage. Pay very close attention to what he says about God's will and our will. In this passage, in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, Peter addresses the crowd and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cross was God's definite plan. Christ's death warrant was signed the day he was born. He came to deliver the world by dying. God initiated the crucifixion. It was all part of a sovereign plan that he and the Son had agreed upon together. And it's why we don't see Christ protesting and fighting back when he's on trial before Pontius Pilate. Instead, as Isaiah foretold, he was silent like a lamb before its shears. He didn't put up a fight. Like a sheep that is led 
to slaughter. He didn't resist or say a word in his defense because he didn't need to. There was no violence in Christ. There was no sin, as Isaiah says. There was no deceit in his mouth. So he suffered silently because deep down he knew this is the reason I came. To go to the cross and to substitute my life for theirs. To substitute my body on the cross for Christopher Coffin, for you and I. There was no other way to save guilty people from their sins than the crucifixion that we see. This week, I was, I was moved by a story of an Auschwitz survivor. Maximilian Kolbe was a Polish priest who died as a prisoner in Auschwitz. And he died because a prisoner had actually escaped Auschwitz the nights before. Those that are familiar with the history of Auschwitz know that many of the SS guards, to deter people from escaping from the camp, uh, when someone escaped, they would round up 10 people often who were related to the person, family, friends, bunkmates, and 10 people would die and be executed if one escaped. So one night, a prisoner escaped from Auschwitz and 10 men were called forward to die to deter others from trying to escape. One of the 10 men selected to die, a prisoner, began to cry out, My wife, my children, I will never see them again. At this, a Polish priest named Maximilian Kolbe stepped forward and asked the SS guard if he could die in the place of this man. The SS guard first balked at the request, but then was struck silent by the unusual request because no one had ever volunteered to die for someone else during his time as a guard. So he granted the request. The prisoner with the wife and children was returned to the ranks and Malcolm, Maximilian Kobe, the priest, took his place. The man who survived that day, that prisoner, later was interviewed and recalled his experience of Maximilian taking his place, and this is what he said. I have the quote up there because it just was so profound. I had to share this with you. Listen to these words. I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it, I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger. Is this some dream? I was put back into my place without having had the time to say anything to Maximilian Colby. I was saved. For a long time I felt remorse when I thought of Maximilian. 
By allowing myself to be saved, I had signed his death warrant. But now on reflection, I understood that a man like him could not have done otherwise. Perhaps he thought that as a priest, his place was beside the condemned men to help them keep hope. In fact, he was with them to the last. Maximilian Kobe was put in a room with the ten others, that, nine others that had been selected, and the guards deprived him of, of food and water, and after, after ten days, everyone died except Maximilian. A guard came in, SS guard came in, found him reciting the Psalms. He had led the prisoners in reflections on the passion of the Christ, and then the SS guard gave him a lethal injection, and Maximilian died. When I read that story this week, it moved me because you and I were like that prisoner. We, we have this priest, this great high priest, who stepped forward and took our place, and by doing that, he signed his own death warrant. And he did it because he loves us. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Every wound that Christ received was sovereignly orchestrated by God, and every wound was for us so that we might be saved. But on a deeper level, this is what love looks like, friends. It looks like Isaiah 53. Uh, a sinless savior who takes our place, who steps forward and says, I'll die so they don't have to. I'll take their guilt and their shame so they can be innocent. Let this one live. Take my life. That's why in Romans chapter 5, reflecting on the sacrifice of Christ in that chapter, Paul is quick to point out that Christ's wounds were received because of love. In Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 to 8 of this well-known passage, reflect on this and see this through the beautiful spirit-inspired lens that Isaiah has given us of our servant and hear these words. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, every wound that Christ suffered ultimately was because of love. When you're tempted to doubt God's love for you, I want you to open up Isaiah 53, and I want you to remember the wounds that our Savior bore for you and for me. 
I want you to allow God the Father by the Spirit to bring you before the cross as you see your Savior dying on the cross, disfigured, as Isaiah said, beyond human semblance. He didn't even look human when they were done with him. He was wounded so severely. He did it all because he loves you. He loves you, River West. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to be crushed on the cross so that we would never doubt his love, so that we could know nothing in all creation in death and life will ever be able to separate us from this love we see on the cross. No matter how far you stray, no matter how many times you fall and you turn your back on him and doubt his love, I want you to always remember the nail-scarred hands of Jesus belong to a great high priest who conquered the grave so his wounds could intercede for you and plead for you no matter what you're going through. One last picture here. I'm going to have the worship team come up here. We're going to worship in a moment. Isaiah 53, one last verse. Verse 12. Look once again at what we have because of the wounds of our Savior. In verse 12, Isaiah makes this promise, and he says, Therefore I will divide him a portion among the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The servant we have been studying here, they made a grave for him. Isaiah tells us that he was buried in a borrowed grave, in a rich man's tomb, that he was numbered among the transgressors, that he poured out his soul even to death and was laid in the grave. But friends, Easter Sunday is around the corner. And our Jesus that was crushed for our sins, crushed death and walked out of the grave. Easter Sunday, every wound that he bore has conquered every single thing that you will ever struggle with and meet in this life. His wounds are greater. His grace is greater than anything you're going through right now. Let's pray together. If you feel comfortable to, to just lift up your hands, it's just a posture of our dependency on this servant. Feel free to do that this morning. Father, Lord, you could not have convinced us more that you love us than, Father, this son that you sent to be crushed, Lord, under the weight of our sin. Father, we confess to you today that all of us have gone astray. Our hearts go after things that cannot satisfy. Father, you know the self-made prisons that we 
brought in here this morning. And Father, thank you for loving us. Even when we were sinners, Lord, you show your love for us by signing your own death warrant, by going to the cross for us so that we, Lord, might be able to experience and taste peace. Father, I pray for someone here this morning that just needs to experience, Lord, the peace of a restored relationship with you, with someone else. Father, minister your peace that surpasses understanding, that just defies explanation. Minister your peace and let it, let it quiet some souls in here that are, are struggling and can't rest. Father, we bring our wounds to you. We'd never be able to to come and, and worship you if you didn't welcome wounded people. Be so quick to heal and forgive. Would you do that work by the Spirit in our midst, Lord, this week as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter? May we see your wounds. And may they be our salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.